Good morning. Good morning. Wednesdays we're feeding the homeless. If you want to go, let me know. I'll be working. Okay. The next women's study that's through the summer. Is that right? August 3rd? That is correct. Okay. You did pretty good. The next men's study is August 5th. This will be our last study in the book. It'll be our last chapter. Pretty exciting. Way cool. It is. The next youth night is Thursday, June 27th. Marriage retreat October 13th through the 15th. Seemed like a long ways off, but it's not that far off now. No, actually, um, Estes Park is for Kennedy that week too. Is it really? <laughs> it's okay. I'm gonna head up there and head back down and head back up. There you go. Lots of driving up and down the mountain mm -hmm. for you. Sign up for email updates or you can check out the calendar online, thechurchne.org. With that, do you have any questions? No. Yeah. No. Should we pray? Dear Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn more about who you are, your will and your ways and how you work in our lives, how you lead us, how you guide us, how you protect us, how you encourage us, how you motivate us. I just ask you to speak to each of our hearts. You know right where we're at. You know what each one of us is going through. You know our thoughts and our desires you know, the challenges and the struggles that we each have in our lives, that you would protect us, you would lead us away from temptation, strengthen us and encourage us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. You read out of the New Living Translation. Were you already there? You already knew where to go? So Hebrews chapter 5, starting here in verse 1. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. He is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why... He must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. 
No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. In another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So here we read what the high priest's job was, that the high priest's job was to represent the people. But I'd also say to you that the high priest's job was to represent God to the people. And I think a good representation of this or a good picture of this would be the life of Moses right Moses would go meet with God on Mount Sinai and he would bring the petitions to the people with him the things that the people needed and then God would give him a message and he would go and teach that message to the people so it's kind of I think Moses is a, a good example even though Moses isn't labeled as a high priest but Moses is a good example of what a high priest looks like. He's kind of that mediator between God and people. <clears throat> and in the Old Testament, in the law, that's how God worked with the people. He had a mediator in between. But now, our mediator in between is Jesus. We can go directly to God himself. right? And not to the people in the past, the people in the Old Testament couldn't pray to God. It's not what it was. And this is a, a representation or a, um, an example of, of what things look like. God is painting a picture. God is um, setting it up to, to give us an idea in our heads of, of how we're able to interact with him. And so the law, the Old Testament, we had a mediator that we'd go to and not specifically to God directly. But now, the new covenant is so much better than the old. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing this whole time. He's explaining to us why this new covenant, why Jesus is so much better than the law. So much better than the tradition of Judaism. And oftentimes, in our churches, we can get caught up in traditions, right? In our own lives, we can get caught up in traditions. People don't like change, but then people always want change. People don't... People always want something new and exciting, but then when change comes, people are always resistant to that. They want their traditions. So that's the idea of the high priest and the, the author here. When he compares Jesus to the high priest, he's giving the example of the ultimate high priest. And he makes it very clear that no one can become a high priest just because he wants to. It's an honor that only God can call him to. And Jesus didn't choose it for himself, but God chose him. And he takes you back to the Old Testament. A couple places he takes you to Psalm 110, verse 4, where he says, You are my son, today I have become your father. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So God chose him, 
chose Jesus to be this high priest, this ultimate high priest forever, that we can go directly to, that we have a direct access to God himself. Last week we went over coming boldly into the throne room of God, and that's not boldly as arrogantly, but that's boldly as confidently. We can come confidently to God, directly to him, and that he hears us. But we read that when he heard Jesus' prayers, it was with, because Jesus had this deep reverence for God, that Jesus had this deep respect for God, this deep love for God, and this deep relationship with God. So when we want to be able to come boldly and confidently into his throne room, come boldly and confidently to him, that he will hear our prayers, it really speaks to what kind of relationship do we have with God. Is he a a fireman in our lives where we only go to him in case of emergency? Or is he someone who we have a relationship with, where we want his will done in our lives above our own, that we seek his will each and every day, that we have this deep reverence or respect. Um, Oftentimes the Bible talks about it as the fearing God. Um, But another way that it's interpreted is living in awe of God, living in awe of, of who he is, of all that he does. And we read that that's what Jesus had here, that Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. So again, this Christian life isn't a promise that everything's going to go well. This Christian life is a more of a promise that you will have troubles, you will have trials, that you will have struggles, that when things don't go well, you will grow. God will grow you during those times. You grow closer to Him usually during those times, that you'll lean on Him more, and oftentimes that's what it is. So, just recently, <coughs> last fall, I got to go to Iowa, and we got to work on a brand new machine this prototype machine and we want to do a small test pour and a small test pour the machine's 32 feet wide we're going to pour some concrete that's you know 10 or 12 inches thick and do 50 feet of that so that's a relatively short length but pretty big machine still and so you want it all to go just perfect that's the whole reason I'm out there it needs to go very smoothly and it doesn't but I pray I'm praying, you know, God, please help us. But it doesn't go very well. <laughs> had some struggles in the beginning and the end. And I'm thinking to myself, God, why, why didn't you just allow me this, this great moment where it just went very smoothly and everything went good? But in that, in the struggles we had in the beginning and the end, when we cut all the concrete apart, which we did to analyze it, we figured out, which parts of the machine were critical to get the consolidation, to get no air pockets in the concrete. And without these mistakes, we never would have learned that fully. So why did God allow that? So we'd have a deeper understanding of this machine that is being built and how it operates and how it works. And while it didn't make sense at the time, it made a whole lot more sense afterwards, right? So God allows things not to go well in our lives so that we can learn more or so that he can teach us or he can show us something to make our operation better mostly I think to make our relationship with him better another place I remember is years and years ago we did that gravel pit up in Craig 
Remember that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was a mess. And that was the first time we were in a wet pit, so the, the groundwater was like a five foot down. So the whole time you're digging, it's nothing but water coming in. And so you have to manage it. You make these dams and you have all these pumps and, and we get started and we're already, it's a tight schedule. You know, you got to come out of the gate producing lots of material. And it seemed like every single day would be something. You'd work till 11 o'clock at night and come back in at five in the morning and you'd come back in and one of the pumps had quit working and one of your dams had overflowed and it flooded your pit and you had to start all over. I just remember thinking, God, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you not helping me? You know, I, I do everything you ask me to do, but I was trying to treat my relationship with God as being transactional. That God, I've done all these things for you. You know, I've given up all these sinful things in my life. I pray. I read my Bible regularly. I spend time with you regularly. I listen to nothing but worship music. My life revolves around you. Why aren't you making my life perfect? And that's never his intent. And it's not a transactional. I don't do things so that I get things. I do things for God. I grow closer to God because I want to know more of who he is. And he doesn't owe me anything. That kind of makes sense with how that goes. So a couple times here we've heard that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Have you, have you heard the name Melchizedek before? No. Sounds familiar? Yep. Well... Let's go back to Genesis chapter 14. We'll read who this Melchizedek fellow is. So Genesis chapter 14... We won't read all of chapter 14, but we'll start in, start in verse 8. So this is the time of Abraham. Abraham is known as the, the father of the, the Jewish, of the Jews. Um, it started with him, this great nation. And he had a promise that he had many descendants, but he lives to be 100 years old and doesn't have a, a single kid. So this is the story of Abraham. Abraham has a nephew named Lot. And Lot, you could question whether or not he was a, a righteous person or not. Um, when there are Abraham and Lot's families and herds and, and tribes are growing, there ends up being conflict over the land where they're feeding grass. So they look out and Abraham says, Lot, you can have your choice of whatever land you want. And and you can go one side and I'll go the other. We won't have this conflict between our families anymore. And Lot looks out and he sees this green, lush area. And he says, I want that. And that's the, the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham takes what doesn't look so appealing. But God blesses Abraham and still grows him even in this land that didn't look all that appealing from, from where they were standing. Um, so Lot kind of, you could maybe say is a little bit selfish or self-centered. Um, not maybe the, the ideal follower of God, you could say. But anyways, in this story here, what we're about to read, there's a great war that breaks out in the land. 
and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated and their people are taken into captivity and Lot is one of the people taken into captivity. So Abraham hears about it and, and goes to rescue Lot. So we'll pick it up here in verse 8. Then the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adamana, Zebedum, and Bela, also called Zeor, prepared for battle in the valley of the Dead Sea. They fought against King Kedorlamor of Elam, King Tidal of Geom, King Aberful of Babylonia, and King Archioch of Eliezer. Four kings against five. This happened as the as it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits, and as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the tar pits, while the rest escaped into the mountains. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured Lot, Abraham's nephew, who lived in Sodom, and carried off everything he owned. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram. The Hebrew, who was living near the oak grove, belonging to Miramar the Amorite, Miramar and his relatives, Eshol and Aner, were Abram's allies. So Abram, this is called Abram here at this point. He hasn't, God hasn't changed his name to Abraham. So when Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Keldamar's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Keldemar's army fled, but Abraham chased them as far as Kabor, north of Damascus. Abraham recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So not only does Abraham recover his nephew Lot and Lot's possessions, but Abraham recovers everything that was captured, all the plunder. So, so continuing on here in verse 17, after Abram returned from his victory over Keldemar and all of his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. So blessed be Abram. And, and God, the creator of everything, which we've learned is Jesus. Everything was created through Jesus, right? And who defeated these people? The 318 men that Abram had with him? No, 
We read that it was God that defeated these enemies for Abram. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give back my people who are captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abraham, Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say the one who ma- you might say I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten. I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Aniar, Eskol, and Merar. So that was where we get introduced to Melchizedek. So we read that Melchizedek is, is the priest of God Most High, and that Abram gives a tenth of all he owned to Melchizedek. But Abram didn't keep all the spoils that he had recovered, right? Because what he has, what Abram had determined is what he has or anything he possesses is a gift from God, not from man. That God will provide for him and that he doesn't need to provide for himself, right? He doesn't need to keep this or work out a deal and say, oh, I'll keep half or yeah, I'll keep it all. No, he's confident that God will provide for him. But... He's also confident that he can give to God as well, right? So that's where a lot of people get the tithing of a tenth. Because Abraham in this place gives a tenth. Um, we won't go into it this time, but we're doing a study on giving. In the New Testament, it talks about that you're to give whatever God puts on your heart. So could that be less than a tenth and more than a tenth? And the answer to that is yes. Whatever God puts on your heart. And I'd say that that... Even if you went, that this is an example of it. You could make the argument too that this is an example in the Old Testament with the law, and that Jesus um, came, and we have a new covenant, a new um, way that we deal with God. And in the New Testament, we're told to give whatever God puts on our heart. So, so I, I do believe that. So, anyways, to get a little better understanding of who Melchizedek was. We're going to have to go back to Hebrews. We're going to go to chapter 7. So Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, starting here in verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem, and also a priest of God Most High. So he was king of the city of Salem, not Sodom. So Salem, and priest of the God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then... 
Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains priest forever, resembling the son of God. Consider how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. So that's in the New Living Translation. But in the New King James Version, it reads it a little bit differently. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, who met Abraham returning from slaughtering from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. So the big difference there is in the New Living Translation, we read he gave a tenth of what he got in battle, but we read in the story that he gave everything he got in battle back to the king of Sodom, right? So here we read in the New King James Version that he gave a tenth of all. And I'd say to you that's a tenth of all he owned. And it wasn't the plunder. So I think the translators got it a little bit off in the New Living Translation. Which some people get worked up about, but that's why God, I think, allowed for the different translations. The New Living Translation is a whole lot easier for me to read and understand. But sometimes I think the translators... And it's not a word for word when we're translating the Greek and Hebrew, which is what the, the Bible is originally written in, into English. It's not a word for word translation. This word doesn't mean this. And the Hebrew language especially is very, very, um, well, according to Ming, there's a lot to do with kind of like um, the Japanese and, the, and some of the Chinese languages. You have a lot to do with how it's structured, and um, and that's something that's definitely beyond my mental capacity. But the way that the, the sentences are structured have meanings. The way the words, each individual <coughs> word is structured, has a deeper meaning. So, so to kind of put it bluntly, the English language is kind of like a, a basic language, and there's a lot deeper languages. So you're translating this very deep language of Hebrew, where each individual word and the way the word is structured, you know, female pronouns, male pronouns, neutered pronouns, all that stuff that I didn't really even learn when I was in English class at high school for the English language. It's like the Chinese two thousand characters <laughs> yeah. thirty letters or something. <laughs> yeah. Like that. Yeah, something to that effect. So so you have this very deep language and you're translating it. So sometimes I think the translators just get it a little off. I'm going to get worked up about that. I've never read anything that gets a major thing off. and not a salvation issue. This is not a salvation issue. Whether Abraham gave a tenth of the plunder or a tenth of what he'd owned before is, is a minor thing. So, so don't let it get worked up. But I just want to point it out because I think it's important to the, the real text, <laughs> to the original text. So continuing on in the New King James Version, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. To whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all, comma, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, 
meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So here we read spoils here. But again, a minor thing, whether it's a tenth of his spoils or a tenth of what he currently possessed, however that worked out, it's a minor thing. But the important thing here is that this is what a lot of people will call a Christophany. This is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. So Jesus didn't wasn't created when he was born here on this earth for Mary. Jesus always existed. And Jesus, you see Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. So this is what theological people, people who study the Bible, call a Christophany. And this is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. So, you know. In Genesis, the Old Testament? Yeah, in the Old Testament. Okay, I was like, not here. Not here in Hebrews, but when Melchizedek appeared to Abraham, that would be an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. It's very interesting that he is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. Jesus is the same way. He's without father. He's without mother. He's always existed. He didn't have a beginning of days or an end of life, right? He's always existed. He is God. No one created God. God doesn't need a creator. God is all-powerful. God has always existed outside of time. Um, outside of matter and outside of space. So, here is an example. When Melchizedek appeared to Abraham, I would say to you that that is Jesus, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it makes it a lot more clear here in Hebrews chapter 7. That he's without mother, without father. Doesn't have a beginning of days or an end of life. um, That he is made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. Some people say, well, it's like the Son of God, it's not God. I still would point, say to you that Melchizedek in the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. So, everything in the Bible, beginning from Genesis to Revelation, all points to Jesus. Well, also so. in my notes, like from, I don't know, we did a study, it says what his name meant was the King of Peace and Righteousness. And yeah. It says that when you go back into... Yeah, when we go back to Hebrews. Yep, and that's where we get that from. And the other thing that that represents Jesus is, so in the Old Testament you had, they had kings, and then they had priests. And a priest could never become a king, and a king could never become a priest. And we read about a time that a king tried to offer sacrifice at the temple, like a priest would, and God punished him for it. Wait, say that again? A king can't become a... So in the Old Testament, the way God has it set up, that a king, like King David, could never become a priest for the people. And a priest could never be a king. And we read about one time where a king goes to offer sacrifice on his own, like a priest would, in the temple. And God punished him for it and caused him to have leprosy. So, so a king and a priest, in God's structure, humanly speaking, couldn't do the same job right 
I think there's lots of things you could take out of that. The main thing is that Jesus is our high priest. It makes it, the Hebrews makes it very clear that he's our mediator, that we can go directly, that he is um, pleading with us, pleading for us to God, that he um, understands what we've gone through, that we can go directly to him with everything we have. It's like going direct into the throne room of God. He is our high priest. But we also read that he is king. He's going to come and rule on this earth for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom. So he will be king and high priest, an honor that only God can do. So here we read Melchizedek does the same thing, that he's a king of Salem, and he's also the high priest, the most high priest of the most high God. So again, another example of, of Jesus, if that makes sense. Okay. So with that, we'll go back to Hebrews chapter 5. So Hebrews chapter 5, well, we'll pick it up again here in verse 11. We'll be back in the New Living Translation. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. There is much more we would like to say about this. But it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. So, <laughs> so people get worked up about who the writer of Hebrews is, and I think it's Paul. And Well, I think here it makes it fairly clear that, that we, we have much more to say. So I think the author of Hebrews is multiple people. We means more than one, right? Sound good? Some people get all worked up about this. Who the author of Hebrews was... I think it's more than one person. I think it's a collaborative two, three people that have gotten together to write this letter to the, he- to the Hebrews. So, there's that. And then, what he's really saying is, when you look at the structure in the new King James Version, that verse there is in the same paragraph or in the same um, section as the talk of Melchizedek. So what this author of Hebrews, these authors of Hebrews are saying is, we'd like to explain to you more in deeper detail some of the things, the connections between Jesus and this, this high priest Melchizedek and, and what God was showing us. And, but you guys are spiritually, don't, you don't listen and you're not growing. You're not ready for this. So we'd like to give you a deeper meaning of who God is. Kind of like we went over when we got to chapter 7. That he's king and high priest and, and the only God can do that. So it's representing this is a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. I think that's what the author is wanting to get into here, but he's telling them, I can't because you're spiritually dull. So we don't ever want to be spiritually dull, right? And how are they spiritually dull? Because they're not listening, is what he's saying. And so we don't want to stop listening to God. We've been over this. Today, when you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts, right? We've heard that a few times in our study of Hebrews. So today, when we hear God's voice, God is speaking to us. Are we listening or are we going to harden our hearts against God? Is what it really comes down to and what the author here is really saying. So then we'll continue on here. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. 
Instead, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skills to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So the the authors here, the writers of of the Hebrews, is really um, calling them out or or trying to bring them to conviction in their lives that, that they're spiritually dull, that they're not listening, that they need over and over again to be taught the basics, when at this point in their spiritual walk, in their walk with God, they should be teaching others, right? So at some point in our lives, we should be teaching others. We should be teaching others what we've learned, what God has done in our lives, what does God's word say. But here, these, this group of people are not listening. They become spiritually dull, and they can't go into the, the deeper understanding, to the deeper meanings that, that God has for them. The amazing thing to me is that when I'm around believers, I've been a believer for 30 or 40 years, and they read through the Bible, and they're constantly learning something new, constantly seeing something new. That the, the Word of God, we learned last week, is alive, right? It, it's not that it changes, but when we're reading through it, or when we're spending time in it regularly, we're in different seasons in our life, and it speaks to us in different ways. Not that the meaning changes or the content changes, that always stays the same, but God uses it to speak to every situation in our lives. That there's no situation, nothing that we're going to encounter in our lives that isn't already spoken of or explained or we're able to get guidance from right here in the Bible. Right? So, so we don't want to be spiritually dull. We don't want to not listen. Today, when God speaks to us, we want to open our hearts, open our ears. We want to listen. We don't want to harden our hearts. And that's the danger here. And then we should be growing. It shouldn't be we just stay in the same place over and over again and we're just doing the basics or the minimum in our relationship with God. Our relationship with God should be growing. And we should be growing to where we are no longer feasting on milk, that we're eating solid foods, that we're past the very basics, that we're into um, some of the more maybe complex or deeper things that the, the Bible has to offer, that God has to teach us, and that we're teaching others, right? Probably starting teaching others the basics, but then teaching others more and more understanding. As God gives us more and more understanding, we should be teaching that to others. But we need to be very careful. In James, we're told it's better not to be a teacher because you're going to be held to stricter judgment. So there's a warning there that you're responsible for what you teach others. And not to scare you away that you don't want to teach here, we're told that they should be teaching others. So if I want to be obedient to God, I should be teaching others. But it shouldn't be off of what I hear from other men. It should be on what God's word says. Right? Very important. So, so we don't want to be spiritually dull. We want to be growing in our relationship with God. And I would say to you, the best way to grow in your relationship with God is to spend time with him. Spend time in prayer. Spend time reading his word. Spend time focused on him. When I can go through all throughout my day and my thoughts rarely turn to God, I'm not really 
spending time with him. I'm not really growing closer to him. He's not really leading my life. And that's easy to do when we get busy, which I think I understand that, especially here lately. It seems like we've been fairly busy. But I don't want my walk with God to, to be a backseat thing. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said, I have so much to do today, there's no way I'll get through it all without first spending three hours in prayer. And so when you think about that, that seems counterproductive, right? I have so much to do, but there's no way I'm going to get through it all unless I spend three hours in prayer first. But what he's saying is that the most important thing that we can do is spend that time with God. Put him first and foremost, and then God will take care of the rest. And it may not work out perfect. Your concrete pour might not go as smoothly as you thought, but God's going to show you something and teach you a lesson through that. And he has a better plan than you had, ultimately. So, with that, that's probably where we end. Do you have any questions? He had no descendants himself? Uh, it doesn't say no descendants, but it does say he had no mother, no father. Right. Um, no beginning of days or end of life. Um, he was like the Son of God, a priest continually. And so this priest, we kind of look at that as Moses, where, where the people went to Moses, and then Moses went to God for that. God spoke to Moses, Moses went back to the people and instructed the people on what God had taught him. He was kind of that mediator in between and not that people couldn't pray to God or God didn't hear them because I would say to you that the people in the Old Testament wandered through the wilderness all their murmuring and complaining about how awful this was God heard all of that God hears everything but it's giving you this example of how Moses was a man but we read about his faults he had anger and but he also had a heart for the people well how much more perfect is Jesus who knows exactly what we've gone through, and now he represents us to God. He knows what it's like to live on this earth, to be tested, um, to, to face temptation, to have feel alone, to have everyone abandon you and leave you, and, and to be wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned, and, and then falsely murdered. You know? so, so how much better is Jesus as our priest? our mediator between God. And Jesus is God himself, so we are going directly to God. Yeah. Okay. So one thing in, in Hebrews, in chapter 5, that last verse, verse 14, in the new King James Version, it says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And I think you think of what that speaks to me of is when people first become a Christian, they have a lot of questions. Well, is this really wrong or is this really wrong or is this okay, right? And, and you always have to go back to the Bible. What does God's word say? God's going to guide you through all of that. And I think that that's what he's saying here. You have these people who are 
or not spending time in God's word or not spending time growing closer to God in a relationship with God and they're still struggling with the basics. Well, can I do this or is this sin in life or can I do this or that? You know, they're struggling between what's good and what's evil, right? And with God's word and there is no gray area. It's very black and white. No questions. No questions. All that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The Melchizedek stuff, the king and priest. Mm-hmm. I just can't remember where it was in the Bible beforehand. So yes. Okay. Should we pray? Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together just to, to study through your word, to learn more about who you are, to give you the opportunity to speak into our lives. The more we spend time in prayer with you, the more we spend time in your word, the more we spend time in, in studies, we're giving you more and more opportunity to speak into our lives. And we just ask that you would continue to speak to us this week, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would... Um, just give us a heart after your own heart. You would lead us, you would guide us, you would protect us. You would help us to be a light and a witness to you. You would help us to explain to others the work you've done in our lives. You would help us to uh, teach others what you would have us show them from your word, through your word, who you are. Yes, yeah, so you would um, just watch over all that's going on in our lives. The, divisions, the hard times, the challenges, not that you take them away, but that you would help us to go through them with the peace that only you can provide. It's in Jesus' mighty, mighty name that I pray all these things. Amen.